encourage you to grab your Bibles, or if you need to grab one of the Pew Bibles, you can do that as well. We are going to be, again, in Romans chapter 8 this morning as we continue uh, to study the book of Romans together, kind of working our way through uh, from the beginning to the end. But right now, I'd invite you to bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think as together we meditate on your word for us. Lord, I pray that that would all be truly acceptable in your sight, O God, who has given us the gift of your spirit to live in us. Amen. So we're going to dive right into Romans chapter 8. We're starting at the first verse in that chapter. And again, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 944 in that pew Bible. If you've got your own Bible, I have no idea what page it's on, but uh, you can find it, I assume. So, uh, so we're taking a look again at uh, this book of Romans, this letter Paul wrote. And, uh, and one thing I want to teach you about the original language that this letter was written in. It was written in Greek, and in the original Greek, it doesn't matter what order you put words in a sentence. In English, it matters, it matters very uh, much, right? If, if, uh, if I say, my mom baked me a cake, okay, that means something very different than my mom baked me, right? Or my mom baked a cake, or me, and you, you know, see, the, the, the order makes a difference. But in Greek, that's not true. Literally, you, you, the object, the subject, you can tell them by the ending on the word, it doesn't matter what order they're in, with one exception, and that is in the original Greek, sometimes you put the most important word, the word you want to emphasize, at the very beginning of the sentence. So while in English, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation, the first word in the Greek is literally the word no, or nothing. And then it's therefore. So, so what, what Paul is trying to help us understand as we begin this next chapter is that there's a, there's a, a, a big new thought coming. In, in other words, literally what he's saying is, everything that we've looked at in the first seven chapters of this book about the fact that all people are sinners, and that no one can avoid sinning, and that God has done something about that by giving us a new kind of righteousness that comes from, by, uh, by faith in Jesus Christ, and how that's different than trying to earn our own salvation, and then what it means to try to live in that love and grace. Everything that we've looked at in the first seven chapters, Paul now says, okay, in light of all that, you need to know that because of all that, there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment. Uh, we are not held guilty, no guilt. There's no condemnation for those of us. And then he uses this phrase, who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says that phrase again in the second verse. Notice he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Jesus. It's kind of an unusual phrase if you really think about it. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, it's actually a phrase that Paul uses a lot during his letters. And so this week I went and I looked at every place I could find either that phrase or where he replaces Christ Jesus with the pronoun him. So in him or in Christ Jesus. And I said, what can I learn about what Paul meant by this phrase in Christ Jesus? And I learned seven things. There are seven things that, that, that we know about ourselves because of this concept that we are in or connected to Christ Jesus. And, and the first one is, we read about it in 2 Timothy 1.9, is one example of the way Paul uses this phrase. He says, God saved us and called us to be a, to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, 
which he gave us in Christ Jesus. So in other words, if you are in Christ Jesus, the first thing you know is that you have been given something. You have been given God's grace. Now, we have various ways of remembering what the word grace means. I like the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Or or some people say the unmerited favor of God, you know, this free gift that we've been given. We have been given this gift of God's grace, so if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been given grace, God's riches, God's love through Jesus. You have received that. The second thing is, it says literally, you have been chosen by God. In Ephesians 1, 4, it says, in him, or in Christ Jesus, because he, he just used that word. In Christ Jesus, in him, he, God, chose us before the foundation of the world. How many of you remember when you were maybe in gym class back in grade school, and, uh, and you were going to play a game, and so your, your coach, your gym class teacher, lined everybody up on one of the lines, and you had to stand there and wait, and then he chose two people, normally the two best athletes in the class, to come out and be the team captains, and now they were going to choose sides. Do you remember that happening, right? And so if you remember that, you probably remember one of two things happened to you. Either you were one of the first few people chosen, and you were pretty proud of yourself in that moment when you got chosen, because you're like, wow, of, of everybody, that guy wants me on his team, pretty cool. Or maybe you had the opposite experience where one by one your classmates were getting chosen and you know it's down there there's two or three people left and at the very end you weren't so much chosen as it was by default you had to be on that team because you were the last person there, right? Okay. Uh, but, but what this is saying is, is that God has chosen you. And not only did he choose you, but you were chosen first. Because it says you were chosen before the foundation of the world. In other words, before God even created this universe, he chose you to be on his team. He chose you to be a part of what he was doing in this universe. And that's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? You have been chosen. So if you are in Christ Jesus, it means God has chosen you. Here's another thing it means. In Ephesians 1, 7, we read that in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In other words, if you are in Christ Jesus, it means your sins are forgiven. So you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to worry about your past. You you don't have to, to, to feel that somehow what you've done in the past disqualifies you from being part of God's family in the future. You know that your sins are forgiven. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions, our sins from us. So if you are in Christ Jesus, it means when God looks at you this morning, he does not see your past, he does not see your sins, he sees you as his forgiven child. Here's a fourth thing it means. Um, in Ephesians 2, 6, it says this, that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you are in Christ Jesus, it means that just as Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended to the heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father in glory and in power and in might, you are there with him. And again, in some way beyond our understanding, literally, notice how it's past tense. It's already happened. It's already a done deal. You have been raised from death to life, and you have a place at the heavenly banquet. 
even more than that, you have a place next to Jesus at the heavenly banquet. Here's another thing it means. Fifth, it means that you've been adopted. Not only were you chosen for a team, you were chosen for the family. You were brought into the family. Um, a good friend of mine uh, was adopted. And uh, one day he and I were talking and, uh, and he looks at me and uh, we were kind of goofing around and he goes, what does it mean that my parents chose me but your parents were stuck with you? You know, I mean, but think about that. You've been adopted into the family, and any of you who have been adopted, it is kind of an amazing thing to think about the fact that, that your parents made a conscious decision that they wanted you to be in their family, and that's what God has done for you and for me. Because we are in Christ, we have been chosen and are a part of the family of God. Here's another one it means. It means that you have all you need. God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ Jesus, it means you have everything you need. Now, I would caution you to notice that it says you have everything you need, not everything you want, right? Wants and needs are different, and sometimes we confuse the two of them. Um, I remember one time, one of my roommates from college uh, had been out of work for quite a period of time. It was months and almost a year, and, and he and I were together. We had golfed, and uh, we were kind of hanging around after, and I, so I asked him, I said, how you doing, you know? And he goes, I don't know, it's tough, it's tough. And so I was trying to be comforting, and I said, you know, don't worry. God is going to take care of you. God's going to make sure that you're okay. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I know God is going to provide for me. I'm just not sure he's going to provide for me at the level I want to be provided for. Can you relate to that? But, but this verse does tell us that if we are in Christ Jesus, we have God's promise is that we will never lack for anything we need. That, that all of our needs, both uh, physical, emotional, spiritual, that he's gonna meet all of our needs. That is his promise to us in Christ Jesus. And finally, if you are in Christ Jesus, Paul also teaches that that means we have this thing called peace. I love this verse from Philippians. I think about it often. It says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you don't have to worry, you don't have to fear. In fact, God promises you he can and will, if you let him, give you peace no matter what your circumstances. And, uh, and, and notice it's a kind of peace that the world thinks is foolish, that means there, there are times that someone might look at you and you're at peace and they're like, how can you be at peace with everything that's going on in, in the world or everything that's going on in your life? And you can say, well, I've got this peace that passes all understanding. That, that might seem foolish, but that peace is mine in Christ Jesus. And, and we're told that that peace can guard our hearts and our minds if we let it. We'll talk about a little bit more about how we do that in a minute. But we have, so we are in Christ Jesus. And then in verse four, he says this. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh. Not according to the flesh, but we walk according to the spirit. In other words, he is saying, now that we've been given these gifts, now that we are in Christ Jesus, we need to walk differently than we used to walk. Back in the 80s, I had to have one of my knees reconstructed. They had to give me a new ACL, MCL, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And, I, and I'll never forget it. After I got done with the surgery, I came out, and, and uh, I'm in the recovery room, and the doctor comes in, and he looks at me, and he goes, I just did an awesome surgery on you. I'm like, well, 
cool, Doc. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. No, no literally, he said, look, that, he said, that's one of the best knees I've ever done. He said, that, that, your, your knee is fantastic now. I did an amazing job. Now it's up to you. He said, because you could screw it up. He said, literally, if you don't do your rehab, if you don't work hard, if you don't do what you're told to do during rehab, the best surgery in the world is going to get ruined. And he said, so, so now it's up to you, buddy. If you want a good result here, I did my part. Now it's time for you to do your part. And by the way, that's probably the same pep talk he gave everybody after surgery. I don't know. But, uh, but, but what he was trying to help me understand is that he had given me a gift. He had given me a new knee. Really, a, a new lease on, on life, a new you know, chance to run and, and do sports and all the stuff I love to do. He said, but, but I had to do my part now. And in fact, one of the things that they did as a part of my rehab is they did something called a gait analysis, where they literally, as you can see kind of in the picture here, they put sensors on my leg, and then I had to walk while they videotaped it so they could look at how I was walking. Because see, here's the problem. It had been months that my knee was messed up before I had that surgery. And during those months, what did I learn to do? I had learned to walk in a manner that was not worthy of my calling, right? I had learned to walk in a way that wasn't good. And if I if I just, even though my knee was now fixed, if I went back to walking that other way, it would ruin the surgery that had been done. That's kind of what God is saying here is. Uh, Through the words of Paul, what he's telling us is he has done something amazing for us. He's given us his love and grace and forgiveness. He's given us this peace that passes all understanding. He's made us a part of his family. But now we got to walk like it. And literally, he even says, if you don't walk like it, you're going to mess up what I've given you. Notice in verse 5 there, he says, here's how we do it. We have to set our minds Not on things of the flesh, but set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So in other words, what he's saying is, how we live now, a lot has to do with what happens up here between our ears. You guys know I like to golf. I've talked about that with you before. A lot of people say you play golf on the golf course. That's not true. Really, where you play golf is right up here between your ears. In other words, what you think has so much of an effect on the game that you play. There was a guy years ago named Norman Vincent Peale who wrote this book called The Power of Positive Thinking. Uh, Maybe a lot of you uh, that are older remember that. Well, for a while, that was kind of all the rage in our country, this whole idea of positive thinking, and then it kind of fell out of favor. But recently, the University of North Carolina did a study, and they, they actually are able to prove that your thinking affects what happens in your life in some pretty dramatic ways. And they actually did some work to study this and find out why this is true. And, uh, and so, here, let me unpack this for you a little bit. Imagine that today after church, you go, wow, it's a beautiful day. I'm going to go take a walk. And you, go, you start to take a walk, and the sun's kind of hot, and you go, you know, it'd be really nice if I could walk in the shade. Oh, there's a, there's a path that goes through the woods. I'm going to take a walk on the path through the woods. And you're kind of walking, and you're enjoying the beautiful day, and then all of a sudden you kind of look up, and right off the side of the path, in the foliage, you see this. Now, If five minutes before this, you were thinking, you know, I might be getting a little bit of a blister on my foot. Do you think you're still thinking about your blister at this moment? No. In fact, you're thinking one of two things. Can I fight this thing or can it outrun me, right? It's, they call this the fight or flight reflex. And and, and literally, what happens when you are afraid 
or what happens when, when you are sad, or, or what happens um, when, when you are um, angry, is your, your options, your, your, it's like your, your way of thinking narrows down until there are maybe only one or two things that you can possibly think about. And, uh, and so when you are thinking ang- angry thoughts or when you are sad or, or uh, when you are depressed or, or when you are afraid, when, when that happens, it narrows your thinking down and, and you can't think about all the options and possibilities that you have in front of you. You can't think. It's like it's this or nothing. On the other hand, when you're walking along a beautiful beach and there's a sunset and the waves are gently lapping on the floor, that's when, that's when you, you can be calm and at peace. And what studies have shown us is the, it's like the world of possibilities is in front of you. And you're able to think about big thoughts about lots of different things, and you're able to let your mind kind of wander and see where it ends up, and you're, and, and you're able to think about future possibilities that you would never think of when you're afraid. And so, in other words, what, what scientists, social scientists are telling us is there is something to this idea that what happens in our brain controls what happens in our life, that 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 letting our minds be open and thinking positively can make a dramatic difference in our life. And that's what Paul is talking about here, about setting our minds on things of the Spirit. And in other words, he says the blessing is we actually have the gift of God's Spirit to help us in this. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, And he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. In other words, the key to positive thinking is the gift of God's spirit working in our lives. And folks, it's a big deal. In the next verse, in verse 12, he says this, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if the spirit you put to death, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, he said it's literally a life and death matter that we are setting our minds on the right things. And then look at verse 14. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So let me, let me just stop here for a second. What does it mean to be led by God's spirit? What does that mean? First of all, you have the gift of God's spirit living in you, according to the text. When did you get that gift? In the waters of your baptism. When you were baptized, and that doesn't matter whether you were baptized as a baby or whether you were baptized as an adult or somewhere in between, when you were baptized, we are taught that you were given the gift of God's spirit to live in you, and now that spirit is in you, and that spirit will guard your hearts and minds. That spirit will direct your thoughts if you let the spirit do it. Here's what that looks like. So you're in the line at the grocery store, and the person right in front of you in line uh, is Got, got just a few items, and they're kind of fumbling uh, in their purse or in their wallet to try to scrape together enough cash, and it becomes obvious they're going to be a couple bucks short. And you get this little nudge in your head that says you should help them out. And what immediately happens instantly after that? There's a second little nudge that goes, 
but then maybe you won't enough, have enough for what you need to buy, or uh, maybe they'll think you're weird, or, but, but then they're just going to depend on other people instead of taking care of their... All of a sudden, you've got all these other thoughts that start competing against that initial nudge that you got, and you've got a choice, and that choice is, am I going to follow that nudging, that prompting from God's Spirit, or am I going to let my fear or my concerns get in the way? Let me give you another example of that. You're at work. And one of your coworkers is sitting down with you and, and they start to tell you about something that's going on in their lives. Maybe it's the illness of somebody they love or, or uh, maybe they're having trouble in their relationship at home or, or their landlord's raising the rent and they're not sure what they're going to do. And, and there's this little prompting, this little nudging you get in your mind and it says you should offer to pray for them. And, and not just like, oh, I'll pray for you about that someday like when I'm in bed tonight. And like right now, say to them, can we pray about that? Can I pray for you right now? That's that little nudging you get. And what happens instantly right after that, you get these other thoughts, which are like, they're going to think you're weird if you do that. Or I'm here at work. Can I even pray at work? Will I get in trouble if I pray at work? You know, and all of a sudden, instantly, there's these other, these other doubts and fears you start to get. And the question is, am I going to follow that prompting of God's spirit in that moment? Or am I going to let those other doubts and things get in the way? And let me give you one more example. It's two in the morning. And you were asleep and you woke up and now you're laying in bed and you can't fall back to sleep. And uh, all of a sudden, your mind starts going down that path of starting to think about the stuff that you're afraid of, the stuff that isn't working out well in your life, the stuff that you're concerned about. And, uh, and you know, if you let your mind head down that path, it's probably going to be an hour or more before you can fall back to sleep if you can at all. And, uh, and, and by the way, why is it that at 2 in the morning, problems seem so much bigger than they do at 8 in the morning? They, they just do. And that happens to me all the time. I'll be sitting there at 8 in the morning going, I was really worried about that, seriously? But it happens, right? But in that moment, you've got that moment where the Holy Spirit is right there just ready to go, hey, just give it to the Lord. You don't have to think about that stuff. It's in God's hands. God's going to provide everything you need. You are his loved child. You, you, you've been adopted into his family. He's chosen you before the world began. Uh, you, you, there's now no fear for those and no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit starts to lead you down that path towards peace. And you've got, you've got a choice in that moment. Am I going to let my mind spiral into fear? Or am I going to accept that peace that the Spirit gives me? And in that moment, you've got a decision to make. The question is, where are you going to set your mind that's what Paul is asking us. That's what Paul is challenging us about. And he's saying, literally, it's a life and death matter, folks. He's saying, are, are we going to let the Spirit guide us? Are we going to follow those promptings of God's Spirit? Or are we going to ignore them and go back to walking the way we used to walk before we had that gift of God's Spirit in our lives? And then he goes on to say this in the uh, next verses, in 15. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Does that sound familiar? He says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, what's that word, Abba? It is not a 1980s pop group, okay? I mean, it is, but that's not who Paul's talking about, right? Actually, you know what that word means? It's daddy. It's, it's, it's the word uh, in the original language for daddy. And remember, Paul learned this from Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that came along and said to you and me, oh, you get to call him daddy. Isn't that amazing? I mean, think about who we're talking about. We're talking about the God of the universe. You get to call him daddy. 
How many of you have ever read like the old King James version of the Bible where with God it's all thee and thou and all this kind of stuff? I, I've had people tell me we should still be using the King James version because it, it shows proper respect to God by saying thee and thou to God. We should show God respect. We shouldn't say you to God. That's, that's, that's like informal. That's, that's not good. Actually, it's the exact opposite, by the way. In, in, in the 1600s when the King James was translated, your good friends you'd say thee and thou to, it was to the king you'd say you, it was more formal. So actually, the writers of the King James Version chose the less formal pronouns for God, and, and they did that because of things like this, where Jesus says, oh, you don't have to call him, oh, great God in the sky, you can call him daddy. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. And, and, and look at what it means that we've been adopted into his family. It, it means, first of all, not only have we been adopted, not only have we been chosen to be part of God's family, but as a result, we can be fearless. He says, but you, didn't, you don't have to fall back into fear because you've received this adoption as sons and daughters. And not only can we be fearless, but he says, but you are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, there's good news. You're in the will. We have an incredible inheritance that is ours through Christ. And what is that? That's eternal life. Eternal life now and forever with our God and with those that we love. That's our inheritance. But then he ends this section of the letter, and we'll unpack this a little more next week. He ends this section of the letter with one little but, one little caveat. He says, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, he says, all this is yours, but I don't want you to think it's gonna be easy because it's not always gonna be easy. It's gonna be hard. Folks, if every single time that God's Holy Spirit prompts you, you do what he says, it's not always gonna go well. Sometimes people will think you're weird because you offered to pray for them. I do this thing every once in a while where um, I'll ask a server at the wait, you know, the waitress or the waiter at the restaurant. I'll say, "Hey, we're going to pray before the meal. Is there something I can pray for you for?" And, and most of the time, people will say, "Oh, yeah, that'd be great. You know, pray for this or pray for that. It's really kind of cool. You should try it." Uh, but uh, but I remember one time about two years ago, I said that to the server, and the server went, "Yeah, you're going to pray, right?" Turned and walked away. Guess what? New server came over. I said, "You know, the last server didn't want to wait on you guys anymore." I was pretty embarrassed. Oh well, I survived, right? But he's warning us, it's not always gonna be easy. When we follow those promptings of God's spirit, the world around us isn't always gonna understand. The world around us isn't always gonna appreciate it. And, and that's okay, because we're suffering with Christ Jesus. So one last thing before we wrap up this section. So I did a little study, and I went back and I looked, and the word spirit, or Holy Spirit, is used in the book of Romans 36 times. Now, in the first seven chapters that we've studied up until this point, it was used a total of seven times, about once every chapter. And in these first verses in chapter eight that we studied, guess how many times the word spirit was used today? 12 times, just in this one chapter. You can see something new is happening in this book of Romans now, and, and it's going to continue through the rest of this book as he helps us understand what it means to live in response to God's grace to be people that are motivated and guided by God's spirit in our lives. 
I pray that we would do that, all of us, every single day, that we would walk in a new way, guided by his spirit. Amen. Well, we want-